nice to see everybody. It's great to worship with you today. I'm excited to share. Uh, I have a question to ask you, um, and the question is, have any of you ever lost your voice before? Has anybody lost it? Yeah, mostly everybody has lost their voice. So uh, for those of you that don't know, um, I'm a big soccer guy. I'm a soccer fan. I love soccer and all that. Uh, we've got a few of us here in the, in the church. Um, and one, of the, one of the things that I do with soccer is I actually coach a team. I coach a high school team in the fall and a middle school team in the spring. So I'm in the middle of uh, my middle school season right now. And uh, the team this year, um, I've come to realize they're a pretty inexperienced group. Um, they haven't really played that much before, like a couple of them have been on a team before, but most of them, maybe they've kicked the ball around like during recess, but they don't really have much of an idea about the game, about what, you know, what to do, where to go, who to cover, what the positions are. They really don't know what's going on. So um, I found myself this year uh, yelling and using my voice a lot more than I have in previous seasons. Um, not because I'm mad or anything like that, but just because I'm trying to, in the game, help them know, you know, where they need to go on the field, where they need to be, who they need to cover, you know, all those different uh, little tactics and things that are going to help them to do well, to succeed. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but the soccer fields are enormous. So, you know, we're playing 11-11, you know, full fields, and I'm yelling like at kids 100 yards away, telling them who to mark, where to go, and uh, so... What that's been doing is just killing my voice. I actually had a game last night, so my voice might sound a little scratchy right now. But uh, it's been killing my voice. So a lot of times I wake up the day after a game, and I really can't talk for like the first hour or two of the day, which is pretty frustrating. Um, and uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we had a game where I think we had like games like back-to-back -back days or something. We had like a lot going on. And I, my voice was gone before the game even started. I, hadn't, I, I couldn't scream, I couldn't yell, I couldn't talk. Like, it was terrible. Like, before we even left the school to get on the train, I'm like, bringing all the kids in, and I'm like, listen to me. You have to listen to what I say. You cannot talk. I, like, I had to be so serious with that, because I couldn't yell to even keep them safe on the train. It was like, it was crazy to not have a voice and take 18 kids by myself around the city. But we made it work. But, um, but during the game, you know, we're playing the game, and I couldn't tell them where to go. I couldn't tell them what to do. I couldn't tell them who to cover, where their position was. And it was just, like, really frustrating, you know, because I was there with the information that, that they needed in order to succeed, um, the information that would make them better, that would make all of us better as a team and as a group. But I couldn't convey it to them. I couldn't get it to them uh, because I didn't have a voice. So do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to not have a voice? Maybe you can relate to, to, that, I, you know, to that example um, in a situation like that, whether you uh, have coached a sports team before or you're a teacher or you have a job where you have to use your voice a lot and you've lost it and you know how you know, frustrating it can be. Um, or maybe you, you can relate to this idea uh, of not having a voice uh, in, a more, um, in, a, in a deeper way, in a different sense in a sense that's kind of surrounding um, your, your personal value and worth. Uh, maybe like in your family growing up, um, you weren't listened to. Whether it was because you were young or because um, you were female or because you had a bunch of siblings, um, your voice wasn't valued and your, and your parents, your family didn't listen uh, to what you had to say. They didn't uh, give you a place or a space to share your opinion or, or your perspective, your thoughts and observations on, on what was going on around you. Or maybe, um, and I'm sure this has happened to, to uh, several of us, in the workplace. 
This happens often there where, um, you know, whether it's, again, because of your age or even your race or ethnicity or your gender, you're not given uh, a voice. You're not given a platform or maybe you're not given the same platform that someone else has even though you're just as equally qualified. And that's because of who you are and there's nothing you can do about that. Or maybe you're told you'll have a voice but you fear if you actually share what you think it won't be received well because of who you are. So you don't have a voice um, in the workplace. If you've ever lived in a culture uh, where you don't speak the dominant language, um, you know what it's like also in that situation to not have a voice. Where you're not able to, to communicate um, with the group around you to offer your opinions on what's going on just because of that language barrier and you don't have a voice. So whatever that reason may be for you that you can um, understand or relate to however um, big and serious or, or, or small, um, like my example of coaching, uh, you, you have an idea of what that is like to not have a voice. And unfortunately, um, in the culture that we live in, in, in society, um, there, we live in a culture that has silenced the voices uh, of many groups of people. We live in a, in a, in a culture where, and, and this continues to happen, where um, those people that are in power, they tend to, to use their power um, to silence the voices of others in order to maintain the control that they have uh, over everyone else. And this is something that isn't unique to our country or our culture. This isn't something that is new. It's something that has gone on for forever, for all of human history. People uh, who are in power use their power, use um, their strength, their authority, uh, their military might to uh, rule over, uh, control, and silence the voices of others. This has happened for generations and generations in countries and societies uh, all over the world. And throughout all of that time, this has happened where men have used their power, they've used their position in society to silence the voices of women. And this was not God's plan. It's not the way that he intended it. So we're in um, this series that, that uh, Larry mentioned called Hidden Figures. Uh, where we're looking at these different stories uh, in the Bible, stories of women in the Bible that are often overlooked or um, they're stories that aren't shared. Or at times when, when they are shared, they're kind of stripped of their, their power. And, and, uh, and if you weren't here either of the last two weeks, uh, I highly recommend that you go back um, and listen to, to each of the messages. They were very um, encouraging, empowering um, and challenging messages, beneficial to all of us. This has been a, a, great, a great series. I challenge you to go back and listen to those. They're on the website at everydaycc.com is the website where you can listen to both of those messages. But um, a couple of weeks ago when, uh, when Wendy was teaching, I'm going to pick up a little bit where she left off. She was, she was teaching us about um, Adam and Eve and how Adam and Eve were, were both created in God's image. And they were created uh, for one another to be um, in community with each other, to be in, in relationship with one another, and neither of them uh, were, were complete without the other. And God's plan for, for men and women was for us to live in community with each other in harmony, in perfect harmony. And that is a, a glimpse of what we see um, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. For a, a brief moment before sin entered into the world, human beings were in a perfect relationship 
with God and also with one another. But it was once sin entered into the world. When sin entered into the world, that is when, uh, that is when the brokenness began. That is when we started to see each other as other. We started to try to, to get a, a hand up on one another, to use power and control against each other. That's when brokenness uh, in, in that perfect relationship came into the world. And that is the context that we find ourselves in today. We live in, in a reality where because of, of sin, because of the brokenness that, that entered into the world through sin, we all uh, humans seek to control, oppress, and silence uh, others, other, individu- other individuals, and other uh, groups of people. And, it, and that is also the context where men uh, have and continue to uh, oppress and silence the voices of women. So, um, in the fall of last year, uh, as I'm sure all of you know, um, we saw sort of uh, a, a outcry against this uh, culture and, and, and cycle of oppression where many women who were survivors of, of sexual assault and, and, and sexual harassment, they started to uh, go to social media and share their stories using the hashtag um, MeToo. And this was a, a powerful moment. It was a, a national testimony of how uh, widespread and how much of an epidemic these patterns are of men using position and, and power and money and authority to both abuse the bodies of women and also to silence their voices. It was an uprising of the victims speaking truth and saying, this is what happened. And because of of that courage and that bravery, it has ignited a a whole national conversation uh, surrounding gender equality and how far we still need to go to really get there. It's been such an, an important moment. Me Too has been. Um, it's a, just a cultural statement, I would say. But I would say in, in addition to it being um, a cultural statement, it's also a theological statement. It's, it's a statement that women are not inferior to men, that their bodies are not men's property, and that women are created in the image of God, that women have voices and stories that matter, that we all need to listen to. The voices of women need to be amplified. The stories of women need to be told. If we want to create a world that restores that brokenness of human relationships, that separation of human beings from one another back to the wholeness and and harmony that we saw between Adam and Eve in the garden. And that is what I believe is the job of the church. That's one of our jobs, to be telling uh, these stories, to be amplifying the voices of women, to be fighting uh, for gender equality. That is one of the ways that we participate in building up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that's one of the ways that we demonstrate to the world the healing and and restorative and redemptive power of the gospel. So I don't know um, if you know, you probably know, but... Historically, the church has not done a great job at this. That might be an understatement. Uh, But even and um, especially in the church, men have marginalized women to the extent where they have no voice. And where their stories, even the stories of women in the Bible, 
aren't told. Or, like I said earlier, when they are told, they're just briefly brushed over. And the stories of powerful women in the Bible are explained as exceptions. As exceptions to uh, the biblical mandate of male leadership. And I say that with quotations because I don't believe that. Um, And that's somewhat of a controversial thing in some circles. In other circles, it's not at all. But in some Christian circles, this is still uh, a point of contention where there's a lot of debate and back and forth. Um, And uh, so my personal belief surrounding, I just want to, it's a brief side note, my personal belief surrounding this idea um, that men are supposed to lead uh, and women are supposed to follow, um, I believe that that comes from just a few verses uh, that are taken out of context. And that if we truly want to know uh, what the Bible says about women in the church and in society and in their roles in leadership, there's two things that we need to do. The first thing is we need to read the Bible in its full context. And the Bible in its full context is a story uh, that begins with the oneness and the perfect relationship um, of humans with one another in the garden and then moves to otherness and brokenness because of sin that entered the world. And we're all on a journey back to oneness, back to that picture Um, that was there for us in the garden to begin with. We have to read the whole story of the Bible in that context. And the other thing that we have to do uh, that to me seems very obvious uh, is we just need to look at the stories in the Bible of what women actually did, right? Isn't that a great precedent for what women can and should be able to do? Um, That's what I believe. So uh, I can talk more about that. I don't want to spend this whole time on that, but I've done a bit of reading and and study on this topic. If you're interested in like learning more about this, you can talk to me afterwards, and I can point you in the direction of some resources that can help you. Um, this was something that w- like drove me crazy, and I've learned a lot and become somewhat passionate about it. But anyway, so um, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at one of those stories, and uh, we're going to look at the story um, of a woman named Deborah. And Deborah's story uh, it can be found in the Book of Judges. Um, in the Old Testament, in chapter 4. So um, Judges is a book uh, that documents the, the f- about a 400-year um, period of history of Israel, of the people of Israel, after they had been um, led out of Egypt and, and into the Promised Land. And, but at this time, while they were living in the land, uh, there were a lot of uh, Canaanite people who were living there among them. And these people groups uh, of the Canaanites that were living uh, among them, they had a lot of um, dark and uh, sinful um, cultural and religious practices that they would uh, partake in. And the Israelites, um, throughout this time, well, they were in a covenant with God. They were supposed to be uh, living differently, to be, uh, to be living as God's chosen people, to be following um, his commandments, to be uh, living in obedience to him. But what kept happening is that uh, over the course of time, um, they would forget uh, about God, about what God had done for them, and, and they would begin to be influenced uh, by the Canaanite people who were living among them. They'd begin to be influenced um, by their culture, and they would start partaking in some of these sinful practices, some of these sinful uh, rituals that we know um, some of these things were uh, worshiping idols, and uh, things got so bad, even to the point where um, they had a practice of sacrificing children. And the Israelites strayed so far uh, from God that they even began to do that. And um, so they would, they would forget what God had done for them, Sh- stray away from, from his will, enter into this season of, of sinfulness, and uh, eventually, as a result um, of that sinfulness, 
they would end up being oppressed. They would end up suffering at the hands of the Canaanites or other people around them. And um, after uh, those times of, of being oppressed and, and going through that suffering, they would start to realize that they got themselves into that situation through uh, their own sin and through their own sinfulness. They'd recognize that sin, and then they'd start to cry out to God and to ask God to, to bring them justice, um, to bring them peace. And what would happen is uh, God would raise up a, a judge, and a judge um, was someone that presided over the courts, but it was also, uh, it was more like the president or the, the leader of the country. It was the political and military um, leader uh, of the Israelite people. And that, that, so God would raise up a judge who would uh, help them to defeat their enemies and bring about a, a season of peace for them. So that was a cycle that was just going on for generations and generations. It happened time after time um, after time. And because what kept happening is after they would enter into a season of peace, um, after, you know, a few decades or so, they'd start to be influenced by the culture around them, and they'd fall back into the same sin and the same patterns. And that just kept going on and on and on and on. So if you read the book of Judges, it tells a story of all these um, different judges that God has raised up. And uh, it's a pretty dark book. It just kind of goes in a downward spiral the, the whole time and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, but so in, in one of those episodes, uh, in, in one of those stories of the judges, um, the Israelites, they were in one of those patterns where they began sinning, where they were sinning and, and they, were, they were doing uh, evil things, partaking in, in evil practices and sinful rituals. And because of that, they fell into uh, a season of oppression, uh, a season of oppression uh, that lasted for 20 years. And, and during that time, there was a Canaanite um, military leader named Sisera who sort of uh, led that oppression. So Sisera, uh, the, the, the story tells us that Sisera had 900 chariots that were filled with iron um, that he used uh, to intimidate, intimidate, oppress, uh, and terrorize the Israelites. 900 chariots filled with iron. So to us, we, that might sound like, what's a chariot going to do against a gun or something like that? But um, I did some study, and I learned that this was like the most advanced military technology. This was like the equivalent of having 900 tanks or drones, or I don't even know what the most modern technology is um, for killing people, but that, that is what... <laughs> <laughs> that is what they had. So, uh, you, so they had, you know, a, a strong, massive military. Uh, they had all this technology, all these weapons, these chariots filled with iron. And, um, man, they were just terrorizing the Israelites. And, and things got so bad for the Israelites that they couldn't even, you know, trade with one another between their towns because it was too dangerous um, to travel on the roads if they got caught. Uh, just out on the roads in public, they would be, they would be killed. If they, if they had to, you know, if their survival depended on it, on, on, you know, trading and getting to this other town, they would go through the hills and through the countryside and, and take these back routes and do everything they could just to avoid um, these militias of, of Sisera's army who were out just looking for, um, looking for Israelites. And this lasted for 20 years. For 20 years, they went through this season of, uh, uh, of just terror uh, and fear. And after 20 years of suffering, 
Um, the story tells us that the Israelites started crying out to God for help, crying out to him to help them, to bring them peace, to free them from this tyranny. And so the judge over Israel uh, during this time, while they were going uh, through this season, was a woman named Deborah. Deborah was the leader of Israel. And Deborah was also a prophet. She was a, a person who spoke on behalf of God, who discerned what, what God's will was uh, for the Israelites and communicated that to them. She led her people spiritually. She also uh, was the person who would preside over uh, the highest courts when there was disputes between Israelite uh, people and, and Israelite groups. She led her people politically. And even, uh, she was even the person who would uh, plot the military tactics uh, for the army. She would decide when and where they were going to go into battle and come up with the strategy uh, for, for the army. She led her people militarily. This woman did it all. I mean, she was the leader leading her country in all of these different ways. So in the midst of uh, the oppression that her people are going through, as they're crying out to God for help, Deborah uh, summons uh, the, the, the leader of the Israelite army, who is a man named Barak. She calls on Barak. Barak goes and, and meets with Deborah, and they sit down, and they have a meeting. And in this meeting, um, Deborah tells Barak that God wants him to take his army. And now, you have to know that his army was mostly just volunteer citizens, people that didn't have much training. They didn't have many weapons. They were a ragtag group of guys. She tells him that God wants him to take his army and head into battle against Sisera. And that they will defeat this powerful Canaanite army. Um, she says that, that when you go into the battlefield, Sisera's army will start to pursue, to pursue you uh, through the Kishon River, which is, is, a, is a place uh, where the chariots are going to get slowed down and, and stuck uh, in the mud, and actually it will neutralize them, the route that they're going to take. And when that happens, that's when you'll be able to go in uh, and to attack and to, to, uh, to defeat them. And so after, uh, you know, she tells him all of this, and I'm sure he's feeling a lot of things, weighing uh, what is going to happen and what's, you know, what this could look like. I mean, for, for Beric, this is personal because it's his own life and surely his, all of his closest friends and, and probably relatives and, you know, many people could lose their lives if they would go into this battle. And so after uh, they have the conversation, Beric looks at Deborah and he tells Deborah, I will go. I will go into this battle if you will go with me. But if you won't go, I'm not going to go. And as soon as he says that, Deborah doesn't even hesitate. She just says, of course I'll go with you. And, and, and Deborah goes into the, the battlefield with Barak, accompanying him and his 10,000 soldiers. So once uh, Sisera, who's the, the Canaanite leader again, are you guys following all these names? It's like a lot of names. I probably should have laid out who the, each characters are. Um, so when Sisera, the Canaanite leader, he hears that the Israelite troops are nearby. And so he gets all his chariots, he gets all his men, all his, you know, weapons, gets them all together, and uh, they take off down the Kishon River, which is exactly what uh, Deborah said they would do. 
And, and when that happens, when the word gets back uh, to, to the Israelites, Deborah says to Barak, go. Now is the time. We need, to, we need to pursue them. We need to strike. And so even though they're massively outnumbered, uh, this, this ragtag group of, uh, you know, this Israelite army, they go and they attack. The chariots uh, are stuck. Uh, the soldiers don't know what's going on. And they start to flee. And the Israelites are winning the battle. They're defeating this powerful Canaanite army. And by the end of the battle, we read that every last one of Sisera's soldiers was killed. The only person who got away, the only person who lived and escaped uh, was Sisera himself. So Sisera, he, it says that he flees on foot um, to a nearby village, and it's actually an Israelite village. But in this village, there's a, the, there's a man there um, named Heber. I shouldn't even say the names. So it's going to confuse you. There's a man there <laughs> who has an alliance with Sisera's king, right? Has an alliance with Sisera's king. So he's like, okay, I think I'll, I'll be safe here, um, even though it's an Israelite village. So he goes there. He goes to that guy's tent, knocks on the door. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and actually, th- never mind. Um, J.L. is the wife of this man, Heber. J.L. comes out, sees uh, Sisera, knows who he is instantly, brings him into her home. And she knows uh, this situation. She knows that this is like enemy number one. Um, But she starts to take care of him. She uh, says that that she covers him up with a blanket. Um, She gives him some milk. And after Sisera falls asleep, there's no kids in here, right? All right. If so, those of you that know the story are laughing. Those of you that don't are like, what's the matter? After Cicero falls asleep, this woman named Jael takes a tent peg, puts it on his head, takes a hammer, and drives the peg through his head into the ground. It says into the ground, killing Cicero. Crazy. The Bible is not all butterflies and rainbows. So... Uh, she kills him. J.L. kills uh, Sisera. And shortly after that, Barak, uh, he shows up in town. You know, where is this guy? He's looking for Sisera. And, and J.L. goes out and says, come, come to my house. This is where he is. Yeah. <laughs> she brings Barak to her house where Sisera sees, um, now I'm forgetting the names, where Barak sees Sisera's dead body. Crazy story. So uh, the last thing that, that we read that the story tells us is that uh, after that day, the Israelites, they grew stronger, and they eventually overthrew uh, the king of Canaan and uh, entered into an era of peace that lasted 40 years for them. Crazy story, graphic story, violent story, but uh, amidst all of that, a story that has a lot of, of great lessons for us, a story that, that we can learn from that teaches us uh, about faith, that teaches us um, about trust and about courage. So just two quick things I want to point out from the story. The first thing I want to point out is uh, Deborah and her faith. Deborah was committed to God's will. She was committed to it. She was a prophet, meaning that uh, she spoke for God. She was able to hear from him and communicate to her people. And ultimately, it it was the Israelites listening to uh, and following her leadership that saved them from their suffering. But first it was it was her commitment to God's will. She had so much faith in God. uh, She knew that he would uh, 
that, she, that, that he would fulfill his promise, that not only did she tell Barak to go, to risk your life, uh, to risk the life of all of your army men, and to go into this fight that, that is uh, impossible to win, not only did she say do that, but she was willing to back up her faith. She was willing to back up her talk and walk the walk as well. She put her own body on the line as well. Without hesitation, the story tells us. She went into the battle with the army. She was committed to God's will. She had a, a tremendous amount of faith. A powerful, strong, spiritual leader. Somebody that we all can and should learn from. We need to be committed to God's will in our own lives. Even when things seem difficult, even when things seem like they, they won't make um, any logical sense, if we feel that God is the one who is speaking to us, that God is the one who is leading us, who is challenging us, who is pushing us uh, in a certain direction, we have to be willing to not just talk the talk, but we have to be willing to walk the walk. We have to be willing uh, to put our own lives, in a sense, on the line and follow the direction, follow the path that God has called us to. We have to listen to the Lord. We have to have faith. We have to be committed to doing His will in our lives. Second thing I want to point out um, real quickly is that Barak trusted Deborah. He trusted her, and he submitted to her leadership. So Deborah telling Sisera to... I mean, telling Barak to attack Sisera's army, logically speaking, it made no sense. It meant, you know, possible complete annihilation for the Israelites. It meant almost certain death for himself, for his whole army. But he trusted Deborah. He trusted that she was being led by God so much that he was willing to go ahead with what she was telling him, but only if she would go with him. She knew that, he knew that if she was with them on the battlefield, he trusted so much in her that if she was there with them, he knew they'd be okay. Because he knew this woman was in tune with the Lord. He knew that this woman had great faith and that God would protect them if she was there among them. He listened to her and he trusted her. He wasn't intimidated by, he didn't feel like less of a man for listening to a woman, but actually quite the, the contrary, it was because of of her great faith that he found the courage and that he found the strength that he needed to take that step. He listened to her. He listened to her voice and he allowed her to lead him and to lead the Israelite army into that victory against the Canaanites. When we are committed to God's will, when we are committed to, to listening to the voices of everyone around us, to making sure that every person is given value, making sure that every person is heard, we are all so much better off. Because the truth is different, uh, different people and different groups of people see things differently depending on uh, where they are in society. All of us have a unique and different perspective. And along the same lines, women, they see things that men don't see. Amen, anybody from any of the women? <laughs> they see things uh, that men don't see. And a, a woman taking leadership 
All that can do is help to challenge and sharpen men and make all of us better, make all of us stronger, make all of us look more like the people, the community that God desires for us to be. Women leading doesn't uh, keep men down, but it moves all of us towards freedom. So to get a little personal for a second, I've been uh, married now for almost seven years, so we're not newlyweds, um, but, you know, we've been married long enough to learn a little bit about each other and learn a little bit about relationships. Um, <clears throat> and uh, one of the, the most important things that, that I've learned so far in my marriage, and now, I mean, some of you are going to be like, that, that sounds very obvious, like, how could you not know that? But, <laughs> but something that, that I've learned that really helps to, to keep my marriage um, healthy and that helps me personally continue to, to grow as a person uh, is just to make sure that I'm truly and, and deeply listening to my wife, Kayla. And, and when I say that, I don't just mean like listening um, in conversation, though that's important. <laughs> um, but I'm talking about really doing the hard work of trying to listen to what God is communicating through her to me. So in our relationship, uh, we make sure that both of us have a voice. Uh, we make sure that as we lead our lives, that we're, we lead our lives uh, together, that, that it's not one person making decisions or the other person uh, making decisions, but it's both of us as we're listening to God, as we're discerning, doing the hard work of discerning what his will is uh, for our lives, we make sure that we are hearing each other, that we're listening uh, to one another. And this has only served um, to strengthen us and to help us grow each as individuals and and, and to grow uh, in our marriage and to look more like um, the people that God wants us to be. Um, But I'm going to be honest. At at the very beginning, um, and this was not an easy thing. It's still definitely not easy. It's still not easy. Uh, at times, to, to, to listen, to listen well and to, and to truly open yourself up enough to hear and to receive um, criticism. That's, that's something that, that requires uh, a great amount um, of vulnerability and something that early on I, I, I refused to uh, accept, something that I, I, that I resisted. I, I wasn't uh, uh, prepared or, or ready or um, mature or strong enough to, to, to be uh, criticized or to be challenged even. It's not even criticism. It's just challenged. It's just observations. I, I didn't want uh, to, to give any of the power or any of the control that I had away and give it to her. Because admitting my failures, admitting mistakes, that's what that is. It's, 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 it's letting go of the power. It, it's letting go of the control. And um, what... Uh, what I thought, and it wasn't true, but what I, or what I felt was that I had to uh, resist uh, any, any critique uh, because, if, because that was a way of holding on to my dignity. But what I've learned is that's not dignity at all. That's not what, what dignity is. And, and to truly have dignity is to be a person uh, that is that is uh, open enough, that is secure enough in who they are and, and, who the, and who you are in Christ to be able to say, yes, I'm a broken and sinful person. And I mess up and I make mistakes, uh, but I'm willing uh, to uh, listen and to hear feedback uh, from another person about those mistakes and, and correct them. 
And, and, and that is what has helped me grow into the person that, that I am, is to be able to uh, let go of that control, to listen, and then uh, to reflect uh, and to repent of the mistakes that I have made. And that is how I have grown and how uh, our marriage has, has grown and been strengthened. And, and I just bring up this example because I think it's uh, a good example for, for what God desires uh, for us in society as couples, but also, I mean, this is just across the board, it just in relationship, period, uh, as fr- in friendship, um, as a church congregation and community with one another. We need uh, to be a group of people who listens to one another, who hears each other and who's willing to, to, to open ourselves up enough uh, to be criticized, open ourselves up enough to uh, get uh, that negative feedback because that is ultimately how we're going to be able to grow and we're going to be able to improve. We're going to be able to move out of that space and place of sinfulness and repent and, and find true healing and true growth. At Everyday Church, we want to be a place where everyone's voice is heard where everybody has a voice, where women, both young and old, are empowered by God and and, and are freed from the stereotypes that want to diminish the image of God in them, where they're able to to, to come here and to use their gifts, strengths, talents, abilities uh, to lead, to, to make change, to make a difference in the world. We also want to be a place where men, both young and old, aren't threatened by the leadership of women. Because they understand that all of us living together in, in, in harmony, in relationship with one another, aside from those power dynamics, only serves to make all of us stronger. And that is how we as a church uh, paint a picture of, of what God intended uh, of what God intended for us on earth. A picture of what heaven is going to be like one day. We've all been born into this world of sinfulness and of brokenness, and we're all on this journey together, figuring it out. Uh, part uh, of this movement of, of restoring um, the world back to wholeness, of restoring relationships between people with God and between people uh, with one another. And uh, Deborah's story is such an inspiring story for all of us uh, that teaches us about faith, about courage, about leadership, um, about trust. But at the same time, we need to remember that just uh, following her example or just you know, taking these lessons and trying to apply them to our lives in order uh, to become the people that God wants us to, to be, to become the church that God wants us to be, is going to leave us falling short. Because we know that because of our sin, because of the sin that has entered the world that's in each and every one of us, we don't have the power in our own strength in order to do that. We have no hope. Uh, no ability to, to bring restoration to the relationship that we have with God or that we have with one another on our own. We cannot do it. We do not have that ability. But 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, down to the earth. Jesus Christ, the son of God, God incarnate, came and he lived among his people. He came and he lived and walked amidst the same brokenness and the same sinfulness and the same pain uh, and suffering uh, that all of us do. And he did that without sinning. He did that with perfection. And after 
33 years of life, he went to the cross and he died. He took all of the consequence of our sin and he bore it in his own body on the cross. And he died for us out of the love that he has for all of us. And after three days dead, he resurrected from the dead and he overcame that death. It is through that, it is through him, through the love that he has for us, through the sacrifice that he made on the cross, that we are freed from these patterns of sinfulness and brokenness, and that we find uh, the strength and the ability that we need to be able to be a part of bringing restoration back to the world, of bringing uh, restoration back to our relationships with God, bringing restoration to our relationships with one another and with our neighbors. So the band's going to come up. And they're going to play a, a, a song. And as they do that, we're going to remember uh, that sacrifice that Christ made for us uh, in communion. Where we take um, this bread in the back of the room that represents uh, Christ's body. And we dip it in the juice that represents his blood. And as we do this um, together as a church, as a church family, I want us to uh, focus on thankfulness. To remember that sacrifice that he made and how it's through that that we are set free. That we do have a, a way of restoring our relationship back to God. So, at the very end of Judges, after chapter 4 and Judges 5, Deborah writes a song. And in that song, she reflects on how God delivered her and delivered the Israelites out of their oppression. Just going to read one small excerpt from that song that she wrote. Judges chapter 5. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord 